Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm David Jays and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. We are in a cosy little dressing room at the Donmar and um, for our Donmar on Design podcast chat with the marvellous Tom Piper. Hello, marvellous Tom Hi Piper. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, um, it's very exciting to have you as part of this series. Um, and as I say, we're in this, this, this um, nice little dressing room, but we could be anywhere. It's a podcast. We could be in the outside world. We could be beside the Tower of London, for example, mm-hmm. looking at a stream of poppies, ceramic poppies, 888,246 well done <laughs> <laughs> pouring out of the window down the wall, filling the moat because um, that of course is uh, the the piece he designed um, with uh, the artist Paul Cummins for uh, to commemorate uh, the First World War um, and uh, it's a piece that Millions of people saw in person. Millions more saw images of it's. It's a very, very resonant piece of work. Um, and ever since I saw it, I've been excited by the fact that it was a theatre designer going out into into the world, the open, <laughs> as it were, with with a really strong image, a really emotional image um, that captured. A historical event and a set of ideas um, about loss and about grief. Um, so, for me, that was a really exciting moment of, of uh, theatre design taking part in a very public conversation. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Tom Viper. That's what's in my head at the moment as I, I plan to, to voyage to Planet Piper. But what? is in your head? What are you working on? What are you looking at? What are you thinking about at the moment? Well, at the moment I'm working on too many things, um, <laughs> and which is a bit greedy of me on one level, but on the other hand, uh, uh, for me they're all about collaborations, and most of the thing, the projects I'm working on are collaborations with sort of uh, directors that I've worked with before, So uh, and also actually some uh, non-directors or artists and then there are a few projects I'm doing which are sort of pushing me into new territory which is sort of I think important and, and slightly uncomfortable sometimes so I'm working on a dance piece with Shibana Jera Singh who I've not worked with before but you know and I've never actually done contemporary dance before so that's been entering a whole new world of sometimes pain sometimes joy <laughs> trying to understand this sort of thing which feels so familiar but but isn't and the way that dancers communicate with each other and how things develop and how they use space, how they use clothes, which is very difficult. And uh, is it very different to to uh, theatre? Is it? I kind well, of assume there'd be. Is it? Is it's it sort a, of like a different dialect of a, the same language? Yes, I think so. It feels the same. Um, uh, in that, of course, for me, the performer should be central to your process, and that you should be, in the end, sort of helping them to tell their story in whatever medium it is, whether they're saying words, they're singing, or they're moving their body. You know, that mm-hmm. you're helping that story to take place. 
but in a sense dance I think strips away more and certainly the aesthetic of choreographers is to kind of remove more get more into you know the dance in relation to the space whatever scenic elements there are you know how those all kind of work together is um, uh, is quite sort of uh, spared back uh, and so there has been a, a, a distillation process, but I'm used to that, working with people like Michael Boyd, who was always sort of endlessly searching, stripping away, killing your babies, the things, <laughs> the ideas that you love the most. Um, so I think what I've found most challenging, I suppose, in this particular dance piece is about an ensemble, a kind of chorus of dancers who are representing, in quite a narrative way, various different kind of types of people yet they have to morph seamlessly between these things. So they go, because it's called Bayadere, and it's about um, a dialogue with the ballet Bayadere mm. from a, uh, an Indian choreographer who kind of, you know, looks at actual the actual Bayadere yeah. as their dance. And it's how kind of exoticised. Yeah, sort of it's the exoticised fantasy. Yeah. And how, do you, how do you do a parody of, of that? And, yeah. then, and then how does your ensemble go from being versions of the shades who in the ballet are these dancing two white tutued figures yeah. through to being odalesques in a in a harem and the men uh, preying on them and yeah. yet they have to be wearing the same clothes throughout and the, and the choreographer wants to see their legs and their arms and their bodies so it's it's that's been quite wow. an interesting challenge yeah. that so there's that project uh, then I'm working on a, a, a musical of Dr. Doolittle with Chris Renshaw, who I did Zorro with, so that's a whole kind of musical commercial strand. Doing a very small play in the Usenoff with Michael Boyd, who was around this morning, having had yet another idea about how to sort of solve actually a very complex but simple play. Sometimes it's the most difficult <laughs> to play with four doors and, and, and where do the doors go and how do they fit into different spaces. Do you like, I mean, because you're talking about how that sort of marriage between the big, the big idea and the very kind of the nitty-gritty of how the hell you make it work mm -hmm. do you quite enjoy that does that drive you insane or is it quite a, quite a pleasure to tinker yeah no, until I think something it is fits? A, a pleasure and I've always my analogy has always been a little bit like having a telescope and that you can turn it one way around and get you know a detailed close-up view of something and go ah, you know actually that is the perfect pair of socks for that character and then you turn it the other way around and you get the wide view and you see the whole world yeah and I think a designer has to kind of flip-flop continually between those things because if you're only interested in the socks then you are a stylist and you're not actually interested in the narrative of, of the piece but if you're only interested in the kind of broad picture yeah then actually you're not telling those proper stories about you know what that character's like the kind of socks they might wear you know the stupid analogy but that, yeah it's that sort of thing so and I also I find you know budget is always an interesting challenge I, I, normally quite a good one because it sort of forces you to refine your ideas discover what it is that was at the heart of them, how to express them more simply, is there a way to do that, you know, without mechanics, without, you know, sort of thing, and actually trust in a simpler kind of story set telling, which goes back to my kind of early training in Peter Brook and people. Yeah. So. And I think just from that bit of conversation now, people have start to get a sense of the, the real range of, of, of projects you work on very very big scale very very small mm. scale um, there's been a, as you, you mentioned the work with Michael Boyd which is probably 20 something 
years. Yeah, we first worked together in 1991, something like that, doing a panto at the Tron. Oh, was it? Did it start with the panto? Yeah, it started with two pantos, actually, (laughs) and then which forms Masson Road, and then on to Macbeth, and then from there to the RSC. Um, So, yeah, no, my collaboration with Michael is, you know, we've done over 30 productions, um, and you know, there's a danger of a sort of over-familiar shorthand, but but I hope, luckily, there's always a, a questioning and a challenging. And also, can Michael's now moved into, so like this year I did Peleus and Melisson with him at Garsington. So he's, he's doing more opera. He's moved into he? opera, yeah. so there's a different world there. Yeah. You know, he's, doing, he's doing a lot of interesting new plays. So, you know, and we've done all of our big kind of Shakespeare work and and work on, on buildings and mm. on the redevelopment of buildings, which mm. we did at the RSC. And I suppose the other another thing that I'm doing at the moment, which I think is quite interesting, is several projects. Uh, one which will be later in the year for Indu for the tricycle later next year, and then one for Erica Wyman at the RSC, which is the Joan Littlewood musical, yes. where you, as a designer, you're going to a lot of workshop situations where you haven't designed it yet, but you're going to script workshops or maybe a week long with actors in a room. So you're not being presented with a script and and. You've got the Being first told draft, to do, but, but yeah. you're, you're going, and actually what's so I find very exciting about that process is very often you don't get into rehearsals as much as you want to when you're actually working on a show because you start getting into fittings and right. workshop visits and all the other stuff that's backing up. Yeah. But sometimes these workshop things, you can, and it's just lovely to watch the power of actors to improvise, tell stories, the things that in the script seem impossible. Actually, you know, one person with a swivel chair can, seems to manage to do it, and it really releases the design process and meeting. Actually, I could trust in, in them. They can do it. They can help me tell this story. And yeah. I found that very liberating. They had a similar process on um, uh, Christmas Truce with Erica Wyman as well. So all of these different collaborators, and you're working with them all in very different and interesting ways. Yeah. Keeps it exciting. I'm sure we will touch on some of those things um, as we go. But we have also asked you to bring in three objects or mm. pictures of objects, something related to a production and that you that you particularly cherish, something related to a place that you particularly uh, that inspires you or that is particularly interests you, something about the power of place, and also to start with something from childhood. Well, what, so yes, well, I've brought what do you child, have? Well, I've brought from childhood, I've brought a, oh, actually a photograph because it's too heavy to bring in, but it, uh, it's, uh, I'm built, I think I must have been about 11 or 12 at, at school, and I was lucky there was a, a, they had a kiln and we did do pottery, uh, and I built a fairground helter-skelter, which was about two, two and a half feet high. It actually has an internal spiral staircase made as a separate piece that goes into it. And the whole thing around it, and there were little mats that went down it, and there's a ticket booth and a little sign saying to be fair. And I suppose that sort of reminds me of the sort of inventiveness of childhood, being able to, you know, making things. The fact that I wasn't thinking about making a pot <laughs> or a flower, and actually I didn't, just to be very clear, I did not make the ceramic flowers, those were Paul's flowers, I just designed oh, yeah. the poppies. Um, and, uh, or designed the layout of the poppies, so I should be clearer. Um, uh, and I suppose it also chimed in with a point in my childhood where I did do a lot of puppet shows and things like that, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that, but also built 
ridiculously over the ambitious tree houses. So I had like five story tree houses built in a willow tree in the garden. Five story? Yeah, because it was willow trees, if they're not pollarded, grow really straight up. The yeah. branches go straight up. So you just, you just stack up. So I had those, and there was a series of willow trees that they went between, and walkways went. And um, wow. It, it was all a bit uh, mad, but I suppose that. In a sense, that's why, in the end, I got into theatre, because uh, I was going to be a biologist. Mm-hmm. And at university, Sam Mendes, my school friend, said, I want to do a play. So I said, well, I will design the, uh, you know, I'll build the sex. It was all, I just enjoyed the action of building it. it was, was it the, set in a treehouse? Was, was, was that, was that, all the early productions? Were <laughs> many designs, some of my designs have a certain treehouse quality to them, you know, and a kind of roughness of, and that yeah. principle... Certainly in my early work as a student, you had to recycle lots of things. You would yeah. dig out stuff from skips or past student shows and, <laughs> or use scaffolding and scaffolding planks to make things. So that kind of quality of, of improvisation and I think also working with real actual materials. Although the, I do think of you as a wood man, yeah, like as wood. it were. Is that, is that, has that always been a particular pleasure? Yeah, I think, I think it is and it is a sort of... I do think I have... a try to have a truth to materials ethic so when I did the RSC history cycle that mm. was all in steel uh, and the, you know a lot of wood and I do I suppose in my more abstract work I have explored a lot of wood planking structures so mm. be they circles or squares or you know that and thing and then like I just did it in Boudicca at the Globe you know how do you respond to a building that's so ornate yeah. as the globe with a design. Brings a lot of design with it. <laughs> and do you, how do you respond to that? And yeah. so we, for that, we built a golden wooden stockade that sort of represented Rome, but also represented a fortress, but was simple enough to sort of actually give focus in a space that's going, ah, I'm a really busy space. Uh, and then allowed you to do fun things like the planks falling out during battles, and then we suspended them all up in the air to become an abstract forest within the space. So we, so yes, I've always used sort of a lot of wood. Um, yeah. And how did that start? Because you know, presumably you don't go from zero to treehouse <laughs> without at least you know killing someone or yourself. So how did how how did you get introduced to the as joy a, of making? As a yeah, as a tiny kid, probably when I was about four or five, I've got photographs actually of me with one of my best friends sort of you know, climbing around in a big stack of wood. Uh, and then there was a treehouse that I must have not built, but I remember it. And you know, we used to go, of course, not into the treehouse, but onto the roof, much more exciting to be up on the top. So I think there's always been that thing for me about sort of excitement and uh, uh, and danger, and it's always yeah. a difficult balance in things. Like <laughs> to make sure that you don't actually kill anybody, but at the same time, there has to be a sense of excitement about the spaces that you create and the way yeah. that people use them. Yeah. So, yeah, and a sense that that danger could be there, even yeah. if it. Even if it. And I also had when I was. I mean, I was very lucky. Really, my father was an art historian, and we, uh, he ran at one point the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and we lived in a flat above the offices and downstairs was the man who was the cabinet maker for the museum who was called Mr Woodman and really? he made <laughs> so really, I was really? allowed to go down I must have been being aged about five or six and bang bits of wood together so I suppose that's sort of where it started oh, sort of wow. that sort of thing um, but I've never been very good at the kind of you know 
find your ordinary marketry level a bit, let's be clear. I mean, my, my building style is quite bodgy and you know, sort of key bits of gaffer tape and things, holding things together. So, you know, lots of the fruit. And I suppose I also went in with student drama and then into fringe theatre, the route I took, which I suppose is actually relatively unusual now, was about making actual work and not about model making yeah. and not about sitting in the studio doing that. So a lot of it was a few rough sketches and then get into the space and start building it. Yeah. You know, and stay up all night and, and make it. So right. I sort of had... So the kind of classic student theatre yeah. sort of yeah. model. But how did... Because you mentioned that you, you studied uh, sciences. I think you also studied art history. You, you know, there's the making and the, the mm. fun and the bodging and, the, and all of that. How did... At what point did all of those things say to you, you need to be working in theatre? Uh, I guess in my second year at university, um, and I had the prospect of... Uh, I was at Cambridge, and I had the prospect of... You do a part one, and then you do part two, and you can, at that point, you can switch. Mm. And I got so behind in all the, the science tutorials and practicals, you know, because you had to be there all the time, and I wasn't yeah. there. And I was doing, I did, I think I did about 30 shows in four years in wow. Cambridge. I was a bit mad, a bit obsessed. Yeah. I could never understand why the people in my house got annoyed when I was building sets in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, I've got a show to do, I've got to be, you know, they were all people bits of wood away to find the cornflakes. Yeah, I used, actually, one show we took to the Avignon Festival, I used three old fridges that had died that were dumped out of the back of our student house and gutted them and turned them into a set. Wow. We took them down. So there was always that impressive. So, yeah, it was at that point, and I thought, well, I did our A level. I can do an art history part two. They only have to do one essay a week. <laughs> there wasn't a time for theatre. Yeah, there wasn't an arts course. There was architecture. There wasn't art or theatre there. Yeah. So and then I applied for a postgraduate at the Slade mm -hmm. and got that. Um, but I think by that stage I'd already done like two Edinburgh festivals and you know it's, so we'd sort oh. of it was a, a very hectic productive time and the productions were really big and very over ambitious. Some of them, you know. And I still, I've just about got over it now, but I, I, Tom Hollander was in the Jew of Malta, and I, he has to be hoist by his own petard, and I built this amazing thing out of scaffolding and planks, and it all hinged up, and the trap fell down, and there was a crash mat, and for some weird reason he wouldn't jump down, and I was going, this is really, you know, and I'd be demonstrating how easy it was to fall 15 feet down onto a crash mat, and he didn't trust me. So, uh, in his... hurtful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, yeah. I'm sure he's kicking himself now. Well, no, he's, he's done very well. <laughs> Fair enough. And so, for you, was the pleasure of it initially at least the, the pleasure of making, the pleasure mm. of devising? It was the pleasure something. of building it. And I guess I've always liked actually the final performance. I mean, sometimes I think there are some people who work in theatre who don't actually like theatre. Mm. Um, and I've always enjoyed being an audience member. Right. And I don't really enjoy performing, <laughs> that, but I do enjoy being an audience member and and sharing that storytelling. Yeah. So. So it's that it's the excitement of creating a space and then seeing it used and having people tell a story on your space, which I think is what keeps me going. Yeah, and and it's all I I love that aspect of theatre design that it's um, a response to a particular physical space, obviously, but it's also. A collection of ideas about about um, a play, or um, but it's also and it's also telling a story, and it has to do all of those things mm. if it's going to work on it on every level. Is that sometimes a tension to kind of 
get all of those to be able to tell the story while also doing more than just tell a story. Yeah, and I think it's a, of course, everybody, all designers will probably say they adhere to the kind of the, the motley kind of thing of you know this putting the script first and the actors first yeah and then but then of course there are huge degrees within that spectrum of interpretation and layering your ideas on but i suppose i always think that actually even just sitting people in a row of chairs in their everyday clothes is a design choice and so there's no such thing as being able to do a production that hasn't got an interpretive gesture yeah. even if it's saying there is no interpretive gesture there is you know, even the choice of putting a light on is a is a is a is a choice. It's a, the Peter Brook thing of the empty space. It's yeah. man walks across an empty space, and that's what it takes an act to pitch against. They go, well, where are the people watching? What are they, are they sitting in a circle? Are they indoors? Are they around? Yeah. Are they are they sticking their heads out of holes in the ground? How do you see the person? What's the person wearing? So all of those things kind of build up for me. Yeah. And I suppose there are times when you do have certain sort of you know. More conceptual designs that have more of an idea of interpretation around them. Um, I would like to hope that I try and avoid, you know, too much of the sledgehammer. This play is about this. This is this is what it should be. And I suppose one of the things that I'm wary of too is is over design. Um, in that, in making too many studied choices and trying to, as a designer, remove your your aesthetic eye sometimes for actually a more realistic or a more haphazard something that happens by accident something that another person brings to it so I've always been very you know in terms of doing like costume work you know I don't feel particularly proud of my costume designs people stand with their arms at strange angles and um, uh, but in a sense you're working with an actor who brings all of their thoughts about this one character and you might yeah. have spent half an hour doing a sketch with a few references yeah. so they've all you've got to bring that on board uh, their peculiarities about their figure and the, you know and and the kind of reality is that we you know we don't all look perfect all the time and maybe some things don't quite sort of gel and jar um, so I think that's something that I try to allow accidents to happen in, in the design process yeah and very often when I'm working models, get bits of old models and recycle things and put them in and just sort of like, so that you're not always starting from a completely blank sheet. And the right. same with costume, that you're nearly always working with some found objects, objects from the costume, you know, if you hire things or things from that particular theatre store. So you, you never have a blank, blank sheet where yeah. you're starting with all the fabrics and yeah. nothing. It's, it's always a mix of things to bring together. Yeah. I was thinking um, as I was coming here today about um, your design for the RSC Histories, mm. which was this massive eight-play cycle of the history plays from Richard II to Richard III with a lot of Henrys in the middle. <laughs> and um, it's and podcast listeners, you are very lucky that you are not getting eight hours of me just asking Tom about this because it was just one of the most wonderful productions and I, I think about it often. And what was incredible about your design was that it had to unify to an extent that, that those stories and, and help audiences see a thread through them while containing an incredible range of incident and action and small domestic scenes and mad battle scenes and just and and a whole idea of 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 England and its um, government and warring families, everything was in there. How did you 
kind of pull all of that stuff <laughs> in, <laughs> into one thing. I suppose it was uh, because it was so big and there were eight plays, it actually took away that thing that I've never been a storyboarder. I don't like prescribing this is what each scene should be and look like. So I think that completely takes away the rehearsal process and what that's about. And actually with that many plays, you can't storyboard it. Yeah. And you and you have to sort of go back to, I suppose it's way of knowing what the globe is like was useful in that you go, we need heaven, we need hell, we need some doors at the back to come in and out of, uh, and, uh, and we need sort of dynamic space that you can come through and create movement through. Um, and, it, and we need an upper gallery air level and we need somewhere to put the musicians. So there were lots of very kind of simple, pragmatic things. And we were in a new theatre and we were building a theatre, temporary theatre, the courtyard. And so it was how do I relate to this space, which we're saying is a thrust space. And that actually all goes back. I could neatly segue in the second, or the, actually the final picture, which is the sense of place. Yeah. I should diverge briefly here, which is we took the first lot of the history, we did it in 2000, um, in the Swan Theatre, which we reconfigured and, and wrapped in black and made it completely different. And then we went to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, and the photograph I've got is of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright House in Ann Arbor, which was beautiful, like going into a work, walking around inside a work of art. And Mary, who owned it, it was still owned by someone. It was a living, living house, house, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. She came to see the plays, loved them, and we gave her uh, a ladder from the production. So there is a ladder of mine embedded in the garden of Frank Lloyd Wright House, which I find very, very moving. Um, <laughs> and, and I suppose what, and then we did that in, in Ann Arbor in a sort of semi, I suppose it was more like those kind of Guthrie space spaces where it's sort of a bit, or a bit like the Olivier, I suppose yeah. people would know. It was an Olivier style space. So but a big we, round yeah, sort of... Yeah, and we thrust out and we created walkways and we put audience on stage on two sides and created this big tower at the back. So that kind of opened our eyes to the fact that you could create thrust theatre in an epic space. It would work for a thousand people. It was, you know, like everyone was always worried that, you, that you'd lose the tension in the room, you wouldn't be able to hear it get too big. So fast forwarding, that took us into the design of the courtyard, the design of, of, of the histories, and I suppose the metal of the set fed off the building, which was a Corten steel box that Ian Ritchie had designed. And I loved the fact that I could integrate my design into it, so you didn't know where the design stopped and the space began. So you shared that space, the one, one space with everybody. Yeah. And then I guess that those kind of spaces force you as a designer to be a sculptor and to think about things in the right. So the, we had this basic space, then how do you use it? Well, you start using the figure in a very vertical way. So that's where all the rope work came from, the ladders that came Because there in, were people the kind cages. of, there was a lot of aerial work, people kind of sort of yeah. whizzing in from the heavens, but also exploding up through the floor. Yeah, just to, you yeah. Know. so it was all of those things that came from, you know, from how Shakespeare might well have staged them. I mean, he probably would have had the odd people, you know, come down on a rope, or you know, there yeah. would have been people coming through the trap, the grave trap, and there would have been people bursting through doors at the back and running through the audience, mm -hmm. and all. And, you know, so all of those things made it deceptively easy. And I suppose, uh, and then the, the great thing, because there were eight plays, was that nobody could actually mark the position of every piece of furniture or everything. So the actors had to sort of, in the same way that they learned the script, they had to learn the space. Yeah. So there were no marks. So you arrived in the space and they could just 
put things where they should be. And there, there wasn't very much anyway, because Michael works in a very minimalist way, so yeah. you don't get lots of furniture. But again, it sort of subconsciously, I think, made it into a, this big sort of sculpture, really, that they were, in, were inhabiting. And it has enough possibilities that you could be intimate with it and you could be epic. And then also we work with Heather Carson, an American lighting designer, who approached it in a very um, bold, almost like a an installation light artist. Mm -hmm. So the lights, again, were part of that space and, and, and helped cut through any potential period coziness that yeah. you might get doing something in period. And then I suppose the design's job really was a lot to do with the clothes and how and how you told the stories through it and how you charted mm -hmm. the different family feuds and who went to which side of the side. Yeah. But it had still had lots of practical problems like you know how do you do the rose garden where the, you have to, you have to choose red or white rose yeah. you know and do you bring in little pot plants or do you, and we initially started off with a big metal cage that sort of came in that had roses woven through it red and white and that became too heavy a symbol mm. you know uh, again going back to that over doing too much of an over metaphor uh, then tried out a spiral but that got too wibbly wobbly so we cut that and put it in the foyer and eventually it became a ladder with red and white roses on it that you kind of picked and it almost did look like the two strands of sort of DNA that lock into each other so yeah. and I've um, read um, some of the actors who were part of that company talking about the experience because it was at least a couple of years yeah about three yeah because yeah. it toured and it came back and it came to London and and, and um, talking about how an intense and unusual experience that was for a company to be together for so long, working on such you know, challenging material. All of them, I think, talk about going a bit bonkers somewhere yeah. around the kind of the two thirds mark. I think people were kind of losing it. How was that? Because you, you clearly you really enjoy being part of a company. Yeah, I think that for probably has about the only time where I've really felt completely part of the company. I think one of the troubles with the designer is you're there and then once the production is on, uh, you know, I, I kind of draw away because I know that the company are moving into a different territory and yeah. by, if you go back on the last night, they're kind of who are you? <laughs> so, um, but with this one, and actually, I think what happened, again, we all developed shorthand and trust with each other so that initially I look back at the costume drawers, a huge kind of big book of them. Because there was and something like 800, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. A lot of costumes. It was a lot. And I look back at them and I did have um, Emma Williams work with me as a supervisor and actually she ended up designing the costumes on two of the shows and then we actually collaborated on uh, Henry V in that I did the English and she did Oh, was it the other way around? I did the French and she yeah. did the English. <laughs> you know, because actually the French I designed went into Henry VI Part One because right. it goes in a weird circle in the way that it's written. Yeah. Um, but by the end of it, I was doing much, much simpler sketches or even, you know, people and the people making in the RSC costume department kind of knew what we were doing right. and stuff was and, and the actors were much more trusting and kind of we just turned up at a fitting, oh yeah, that's, you know, great, you know, whereas being intense discussions to begin right. with. Uh, Enter we, the all of Salisbury, he's wearing a plastic bin bag, go! <laughs> <laughs> well, and we also did, I suppose, we did do a thing on that production where you which I think is still true for me in the way I consider any kind of work, is when do you set it? So the first thing is do you set it the period it's written, the mm. period it's set, or now? And then the sense we explored the, all three of those in, the, in that cycle. So some mm. of it had Elizabethan feel, some had a kind of medieval with fusions of modern, and certain yeah. then in Richard III was you contemporary. Yeah. 
Um, and so, and as you went round that cycle, in design terms, you, I tried to link it in terms of the colour, the silhouette, so that even if it was contemporary, the silhouette still somehow had an echo of what you'd seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, link it all together. Wow. I mean, it must have been an exciting thing to have in your head, because so many projects, I guess, are, 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 are sprints rather than marathons. Mm-hmm. So to have that amount of information and all those links and all those threads... Yeah, and, and in a weird way, of course, you don't appreciate it at the time. You just, you know, just full on, sort of doing it. And actually, I was still doing the, a few other things around the edges of it. So it wasn't the only thing yeah. I was doing. Uh, in fact, I think I even started working on Zorro the musical at that point, uh, <laughs> which Chris Renshaw, who I, you know, saw and uh, he saw the histories and 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 loved all the kind of rope mm-hmm. work and the fighting and thought, ah, perfect for Zorro. So there you know, know, it kind of fed into a completely other different strand of flamenco dancing. Mm. So who knows what, what leads into what? Um, yeah. So now looking back on it, you go, oh my god, you know, I don't know quite how we did it, mm. but at the time it just it was. Like Dory, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. You know, you kind of, you kind of, you go, you keep going, yeah. and 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 until you find gradually, <laughs> yeah, until you gradually, yeah, gradually sort of evolves. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess also the good thing was that was because once we had the space, things became so much more obvious. Once you were working on subsequent plays, you know, well, let's do this or that. And there were occasional times we were thinking, you know, I'd love if we could do something new or different with the space. And I did try some things, but actually most of them. Most of the interventions, apart from really strong sculptural ones, didn't work. It was such a dynamic. If you tried to do, introduce at one point, I tried sort of flying in framed sort of pictures of landscapes in a model for Henry the Sixth, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, as I know. It just didn't work because yeah. they were just not part of this sort of bold industrial sculptural world. Yeah. Does it help the fact that you you know, from from tree houses and and fridge? Reconstruction. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the fact that you've and, and the all nighters where you got things together. The fact that you know quite intimately how stuff is made is that quite helpful. I think I time? think it's so helpful. I mean, we we all have to be jack of all trades, master of none, really, as designers. I mean, you're one minute you're talking to an engineer. Uh, or and, and actually, I freely confess that I can't do CAD because I was so spoiled at the RSC with Alan Bartlett, who was so brilliant. You could just talk to him, and he would do it while you were talking to him. So you know, great. Mm-hmm. And the same, and I see that as a skill like a cutter. I can't cut costume, but I can say I'd like it like this. Yeah. Um, so I think the fact that I'm sort of physical and a bit hands-on so I can talk to a scenic artist and I can try out things but they're all you know everybody that you work with is better than you all of those things so there are people who are better mm-hmm. at building than me and better scenic artists than me and definitely better costume makers than me so you're relying on their skills and you're always I think um, I hope sort of being you know humble enough to take from them and enable them to be as creative as possible but somehow trying to steer them so that we're all producing the, the you know the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it does help when you're in kind of meetings and you're talking about oh you know could we do it like this or or that a, a bit. But equally, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> now the object you've brought in, or the, the picture of the object you've brought in um, from a, a production, is, a, is also quite you know a little engineering feat all of yeah. its own. Tell us about this. Well, this is uh, a model piece for a play called The Libertine, uh, which I did up at the Sit with another regular collaborator, Dominic Hill. Who, who and it's a 
restoration, uh, set in it's, the restoration yeah, Stephen, by Stephen Jeffries. Yeah, Stephen Jeffries. It's a kind of modern play set yeah. in restoration about the Earl of Rochester, who's yeah. a, who was the libertine, who basically drank yeah. himself to death. Yeah. Was a genius, uh, but incredibly uh, rude and staged. I mean, at one point, there's a scene in that thing where. Uh, someone flies in on a giant phallus, and there's a sort of a dance of the dildos. I mean, it's sort of kind of absurd. Um, uh, and in that, it's actually true. This is what happened: is that Charles II had the state-of-the-art sundial, which was a sort of slightly sort of bonkers structure that was that was in um, the royal palaces in Whitehall. Uh, and then Rochester, in a drunken fit, attacked it, basically it at night, saying, what, this, there's no point in this thing, it's stupid, it doesn't work, does it? It's night time, can't tell the time, what a useless invention. And, it, and he basically beats it uh, with a sword until, it, until he destroys the whole thing, and then he gets banished from the court by Charles. So it's the equivalent of sort of, you know, destroying, you know, the uh, IBM mainframe or something. It's like some huge sort of thing. And then, of course, you're doing this in a theatre like The Sixth, which I love, and I love working up there, and I love, I love the aesthetic there and the work in, you know, I think there's a boldness to a lot of the work that I, that I do and see in Scotland, like mm. Dominic Hills or Australia, that Colin Richmond, it was fantastic. Um, where, you know, you're, you've got a very bare stage aesthetic, it's much more almost like the rehearsal room, and there's a hell of a lot of recycling, taking things from that have been in past productions or things that happen to be lying around and... and, and you know, it reminds me of my early student days, I suppose. Um, but this challenge is that you've got this thing, it's got to be broken convincingly, and then it's got to be put back together, you know, every, every day on a very small budget. So, so uh, you know, and I had, I had a little model kind of version made by uh, Lorna Ritchie, who was one of the RSE trainee designers, the scheme I used to run, and, you know, mm-hmm. one of the people who still does model making for me. And it's a lovely little kind of thing. And then you take it with a, a sketch to the people at the sits and go, well, how on earth are we going to do this? You know, because we haven't got a huge prop department with loads of stuff. So it was working with then with their, you know, in-house crew and a guy who does a bit of welding and a guy who does that. And they and you know, and they took the project on. Yeah. And for me it was a sort of symbol of that sort of thing of, you know, how do you get a really complex, difficult idea on a low budget through? And in the end, it did work, you know. Were there many, many prototypes? There were quite a lot of prototype bits to it and how it sort of worked. But they, you know, in a sense, they were, they, you know, they were brilliant. Uh, and it, but I think the model was about the perfect amount of detail. And then it showed what the idea should sort of be. But yeah. it wasn't so prescriptive that you were completely stuck or you were saying well we know we have to take this to a professional model making shop it's going to cost 20 grand <laughs> you know so are you uh, sure you want the sun yeah, dancing sure on that? and I suppose that for me again it's something that often happens working somewhere like the sits where you come with an idea and then they offer you their alternative mm-hmm. so we want a bit of mesh in the floor I've got this bit of mesh does that look all right to you that's, and I go, oh, that's great and then when I've worked in America similar problem I've got a bit of mesh on the floor they go, okay, could you spec that for me? And you go, well, I don't know, what should it be? And then, then you, they send you, you know, a, li- a link through to sort of some mesh supplier, and there's sort of 10,000 different meshes, right. and you go, I am, and that's Could the it thing. be a bit meshy? Yeah, that's the thing where <laughs> I kind of go, we're not architects, we're yeah. not people who spec every detail, and I think that, and I fight against that notion that, you know, increasingly through CAD and you know things that we're all being expected to deliver more and more and more detail rather than going actually I'm a sculptor mm-hmm. and you know work with me workshop to create our big giant sculpture together yeah
yeah. rather than an architect who says, well, according to the BSE regulations, <laughs> it, this has to be this mesh with this pressure resistance. And <laughs> How was it, because of you, you, I think you mentioned um, the, uh, the, the redevelopment of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in, in Stratford, how um, that working on the history has fed into um, the project of rethinking how that space, which had been famously impressive but, but often felt a bit cold to mm. audiences, how it became a warmer, more involving one where you could tell those, the, the, those big, exciting stories. And it, but presumably that really did throw you into the world of architecture as mm. well. How, how was that? Well, I, I, I mean, for quite a long time in the early, uh, sort of from ni- probably about 1999 onwards, in the R- old RST, we experimented with thrusting out as far as we could, mm. which actually Peter Brook had done with his white box Midsummer Night's Dream, but yeah. people have sort of forgotten that and had gone back into it's all a fourth wall sort of thing again. And, and the problem in the RST was that the balcony, you were 30 metres away and you couldn't see faces, you know, and of course then that's where the kids go, yeah. so they all sit chatting to each other, their first experience of Shakespeare is terrible, you know, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the people downstairs have no idea those people are up there, they don't, you know, they really did complete disconnect. Yeah. Um, and so, but obviously there's a limit to how far out you can thrust, you can build some extra bits to the side, but fundamentally you're still in a very end-on relationship. So. The, but we had the Swan next door as an example of a thrust theatre. Everyone goes, oh, we love the Swan, isn't it? <laughs> and you know, well, actually, and then, but then we go, we can't have two thrust theatres. That's wrong. And you go, well, yeah. why not? You know, especially as we're a Shakespeare company, why not create a house that works best for the house playwright? Uh, you know, the Globe, I think, subtly had a big influence. You know, once people got over the idea of it being a kind of tourist attraction, but gradually started thinking, well, actually, yeah, there's some very interesting things about the relationship with the audience. Uh, you know the machinery and things that they had, and that that sort of architecture. So we learned from that, and then I guess once we got from doing the history cycle in Michigan, then deciding to do this redevelopment, trying to do a lot. We did a lot of work trying to fit it into the old shell. You know, could you do a kind of you know simple gutting within that, and then but in the end, you know, it just wasn't working. You just couldn't do it. So you know, it then up the ante, and it became a bigger and bigger project, which Michael took on and and you know and there had been a version with a previous architect where they're gonna knock the whole thing down and, and then and then gradually we ended up with Bennett's associates as the architects where we, you know there was more of a respectful thing of how do you create a new building that ties together the Victorian the thirties and now and tries to bring them together and tries to link the two theatres together. So it's very much a sense of how do you make that theatre community work better and, and it work better as a building but within the same footprint. So there's lots of challenges within that and, and battles that were fought about, you know, it's got a six metre deep basement because technical department said, you know, we would definitely need that because there'll be times, you know, and we fought for those kind of things and had to give up other things. Yeah. Um, it was a sort of fascinating process trying to work out how much you could future-proof things. And of course now, instantly, I mean, I'm, I'm no longer associate there, Stephen Brinson-Lewis is, and, and They've started changing the auditorium configuration and adjusting the size of the stage and doing trying out rakes and lots of things. So, on one little bit of me goes, "Oh, don't change my baby." And then I go, "We all do that. Yeah. We all go into Baby's the space great. and, and yes. people and and the needs are different at different times. Yeah. And some people go, "Actually, I'm not so interested in thrust. I want to like slightly more end-on relationship uh, and, and and go that way." Yeah. But it was a 
It was a fascinating experience, definitely, and working with architects and their different kind of deadlines and the building deadlines. So there seems to be a, oh no, no, there's lots of lots of freedom. We can do whatever we like. And we're like, oh, oh no, no, we can't now. And you go, well, when, where was the bit when between this where we actually had the proper discussion to really make sure that we've got what we want? Yeah. Whereas you know, in theatre design, I think we have rather a good process whereby we have quite a long first phase where you're discussing ideas and then you present your kind of in theory whatever it's called white carpet preliminary and then that's tested and challenged and then, and then the next phase so you kind of rolls gradually and then you rehearsal and there's still time to change yeah and you can still ring up the builders and go oh actually <laughs> can we just do that a bit differently and they'll probably go yeah because they're used to that whereas an architect you know once it's locked down trying to change anything so that was quite kind of frustrating that, that you yeah. know like we knew that so actually when we were doing the courtyard theatre we knew we wanted to make the 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 sides curl round and meet the kind of the pros as it were uh, and we hadn't bought that package so we had to you know and even a year before that we go we need these and we go no no you have to that's extra you can't change what you've already bought and you go, but, but they haven't made it yet <laughs> just sort of do can't make it a curve not a straight yeah. but no you know, it's, a, it's a frustrating world but exciting and, and, and also daunting that we've you know this is something that's surviving for a lot longer yeah and therefore the responsibility feels worse you yeah. know that if you do a bad production you can forget about it but yeah. you know you can't you can't create a bad building yeah <laughs> so it would it would live with you yeah um and um we can't not talk then about another intervention into the public world which is we, we started with talking about the, the poppies uh, project because that must have brought a whole load of other practical challenges but also it's such an emotional subject there's a whole sense of responsibility there that a production of a play doesn't carry how how did you find working on that project um it really grew and and, and evolved it began as i was going to do three weeks of sort of basically overseeing the installation of all of these poppies sort of uh, and Paul's initial idea was that they would all just fill the mode and, and uh -huh. it has a big field of poppies right. but they wouldn't interact with the building uh -huh. uh, then I was asked to get involved with it as a sort of collaborator to sort of you know ha have the bigger vision and try and help you know how is this going to work how mm -hmm. are we actually going to do it I naively thought, well, maybe no one's going to know it's there because the moat's sunk down. So what we need to do is kind of make it relate to the building, mm. uh, and uh, and I suppose bring to it that, uh, uh, the level of theatrical metaphor of these poppies are uh, are like blood, and therefore it's a flowing substance. It's organic, and they're not just flowers. So yes, it's a big pool of blood, but maybe it can. So the reason it came out of the window was partly so people could see it as they arrived through, and yeah. then there was another one, the wave that came over that you could see from the other side of the river, and then one on the tower side. So there were three kind of big sculptural interventions that related to the building, and I suppose just did give it that sense of narrative. And I look back at work, I seem to have done rather a lot of sort of flowing red things, <laughs> be, it, be it red curtains in Zorro that kind of drape down in a big curve and pool over the, like, you know, the blood and, yeah. uh, and, and actually in the histories, you know, falling red feathers and, you know, the sort of that, and it is that sort of sculptural verticality, I yeah. suppose. Uh, and then there were sort of purely logistic challenges like, you know, getting the Tower of London to sign off the scaffolding structures. That was because, a nightmare. You know, it's, it's an listed, old building, it's a listed apparently. Building. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's exactly a thing where they were going, we need, uh, we need engineers' drawings. I was 
painting his drawings. Well, you know, which, and it's just a bit of scaffolding with some bits of metal on it. It's going to be fine, you know. And it's <laughs> all right. I'll do it. I'll and, come, and I'll so come we have to, yeah, to go through the whole thing of you know, getting the approved scaffolding constructor for the tower to do these very elaborate drawings. And actually, we've sort of been saddled with that ever since in the subsequent life of the two sculptural pieces that mm. tour around the country. So we've, we've got scaffolding structure that's sort of currently being fitted up on the side of uh, the Ulster Museum in Belfast. Yeah. You know, so that um, so that that was one huge challenge. And actually, I nearly gave up on the weeping window because I just it was just too much of a headache with permission from people, and there was a sort of sense of bureaucratic inertia from a certain contingent of people we were dealing with. And people were genuinely terrified it was going to be a disaster. They really thought that yeah. it would not, you know, would it work? Uh, and that's yeah. why there was no pre-publicity or anything. And so when we first started doing it, people were going, well, you know, what are you doing? So it kind of crept up they on the people, didn't it? And it was an example of social media that really worked yeah. purely from the people who were volunteering. And then it kind of evolved into, well, we're not going to be able to do it in three weeks. We just, the, the supply of poppies wasn't going to be, you know, we, just a huge undertaking for Paul to produce, you know, that many poppies. And, and even doing it the way we did it, we still had to produce 80,000 a week, had to be delivered to plant up to do 888,246 in that three month period. So, you know, you had these sort of shit, almost like the first World War, you know, more, you know, more troops, more, you know, and. And it did, it, uh, there were times emotionally where it did take you by surprise because you, like when I was building the Weeping Window, you go, we need more poppies here and you kind of get box after box and it's like sculptural pontillism, kind of putting them all together and, and yeah. you realise how many you needed to make it have an impact. Yeah. And you go, oh God, you know, I've just, that's another 300, you know, and that's yeah. 300 lives. And yeah. so I think the poignancy of that and then also the way that the volunteers interacted with it and again, like I was, suppose it's a theme is that you let these people into your process the volunteers came I'd, I'd drawn out with sort of spray paint where the different heights of poppies should be and how it should go but of course instantly people started breaking the rules and they were partly too close together or too far apart and then they put high ones in much lower and you and you and you could at that point go no 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 stop stop yeah. no that's not what I wanted and then actually go no actually that looks rather wonderful you know and it gives it that individuality and it doesn't become all the same and the different heights and the movement you've got within it. So actually by letting people, giving them a guideline, but letting them invest their own thing into yeah. it, suddenly became 21,000 people's artworks as opposed to two people's artwork. And yeah. I think that sense of ownership and then hearing the stories from the, a lot of the people who planted were families connected with contemporary veterans. And that's not something that I've ever had anything to do with the modern military. So. Yeah as a sort of pacifist and humanist, it's like, oh, hang on, I was dealing with these people, and then yeah. actually going, no, they've been through, you know, I don't agree with why you've gone to war, but the suffering that you've been through is completely real, and you're, uh, you know, you've lost limbs, your companions have lost lives, and that was very moving, in a sense, the connection with our kind of modern world, really. Mm -hmm. And I think I would love it, in the end, to be seen as a, as a huge sort of, as well as an act of remembrance, uh, uh, as a pacifist sort of sculpture that sort of says, why do we do this, yeah. you know? Um, and I was annoyed uh, or you know, disturbed at times about how some of the right-wing politicians got on board with it, and, right. you know, in a way that became jingoistic, and it wasn't about that at mm. all. It was, a, it was deliberately an organic thing 
that celebrated the spirit of these lost lives rather than a regular ordered military sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it certainly wasn't a, a, a flag-waving event as far as I was concerned. Yeah. And were you prepared for as it were, stepping up and becoming part of a public conversation, because that's something that's so rare for, for theatre practitioners, certainly mm. theatre designers, to have to do. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I've always had a thing about our voice, theatre designers' voice, and that we don't, you know, partly I think because we don't have critics who really understand our work, so we're always marginalised in theatre reviews, um, or sort of, sort of misunderstood. Um, so, and it was interesting getting the criticism of people like Jonathan Jones at The Guardian, you know, who was very, uh, sort of accused of being sentimental and saccharine and there uh, should have been blood and, I mean, there should have been bones if you want to do it. But on the other hand, I think it was such, and where it speaks to my theatre work, such a simple, strong idea, a simple space that told, that told a story and enabled people to see in it a metaphor which they could, if they wanted to, they could see it as blood, or they could see it as a, as a field. You know, people could, and it was easy to understand. And I felt there's there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that kind of populism yeah. that you genuinely do. I suppose it goes back to my art history and my father running museums and things. Is well, you know, actually, art shouldn't be frightening and difficult to understand. You should. It should be emotional and it should engage you intellectually, but and be transformative. And I think that piece did it. So I was, I was quite pleased to be able to talk about it. It got tricky when it got more political about sort of, I did say at one point that I found it dis disturbing that people were, it became a site of pilgrimage. Mm. And that reminded me of some other sort of more recent pilgrimage moments where the nation seems to get almost a sense of hysteria. And it wasn't a criticism, it was more just it's a really disturbing thing to be part of, to sort yeah. of see your work and then see, you know, we're not used to it in theatre to have, you yeah. know, five million people clamouring to try and get to see our stuff, we're <laughs> lucky, you know. Um, so that was, uh, and I was very aware of how quick the press would turn around and and there were various things, like I think Evan Davis interviewed me and Paul for the Newsnight end of year review and was trying to make us make controversial statements and we mm. kind of refused because yeah. I think... The artwork spoke for itself, and you, you know, you, you didn't want to get into a debate with Jonathan Jones about why, why you felt he was wrong, and you didn't yeah. want to criticise the public for, for feeling powerfully about it because yeah. you know they felt powerfully about <laughs> it. So, so um, but I do think it's been one thing has been quite interesting is that a lot of a lot of the work that I do outside theatre, people still pick up on it a lot. So when I'm doing exhibition work, it's featured in things, and even the dance piece, people have talked about it. But a lot of my straight theatre work, people kind of go, actually, you've got me on board. You could, if you wanted to, your press department could be making more of it, but they don't, right. because they sort of like in their tram lines <laughs> of theatre. So in theatre world, I just, you know, I used to be at the RFC and I do this, so, you know, it's a bit of a name, but you kind of right. go, well, actually, I've done all of this, that stuff over there. You could use that if you wanted to. I mean, I don't mind. <laughs> and if it brings people to see the theatre yeah. work, that's great. I mean, I, in a sense, I feel it's, you know, it's it's a very low-level degree of, of um, stardom. Like, you yeah. know, my, one of my daughters said, oh, you've had your 30 minutes of fame. You know, I think I've got more than 15. Uh, 30 is good. 30 oh, is quite yeah. good. <laughs> but if, uh, you know, if... 
actually that encourages people to come and see a dance piece or encourages people to come and see a piece of theatre, mm -hmm. then great, because I feel, it feels to me now that so many, and the role of theatre design is expanding in so many things, you know, the, the well, we, we're going to have it in the talks at Dumber, aren't we, where, you know, there's me and Ayers and, and John Bowser, you know, and people doing huge events and the Olympics and yeah. poppies and I'm, and I'm doing big Winnie the Pooh exhibition at the V&A, you know, collaborating with an architect on that. So, nice. you know, and people want their artistic experience to, to be immersive in the way that theatre gives you, but it's now this exciting sort of thing where you're allowing the people into your space more rather than there being this separation between audience and, and performer. Yeah. Tom, it is just quite rare and quite a delight to speak to someone who radiates such pleasure in what oh, they do. It's been a real joy. Thank you so much. Um, it's Hi, been fun. Great. Well, Thank you. enjoyable to have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to the Donmar on Design podcast series. Visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with world-class theatre makers.